who are members of Second Presbyterian Church. Hope you're getting your World Missions pledges ready. Need your help. Everybody needs to participate. You see all these flags up here. We support work in every one of those countries. And uh, they are waiting for us to help them. Hey, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. And um, we have seen that grace is uh, institutionalized. Any great concept will eventually be institutionalized. And grace is in the church. The church is the institutionalization of a lot of things, but primarily of grace. And when you have an institution, you need leaders. And we saw in 1 Peter 5 that the whole movement of grace in this world needs leaders, men who will rise up and influence other men and women. And uh, we saw what reward there is for those, a, a crown of glory that will never fade away for those who care for other people like a shepherd. We saw that although that's specifically descriptive of someone who wants to lead in the church as pastor or elder, some other form of leadership, it's really true everywhere. All kinds of leadership ought to be shepherdly. So we've learned whether you're a CEO or a manager or a school teacher, whatever you are, uh, you ought to think about leading as a shepherd and take your cue, your cues from Jesus Christ. Well, uh, there is a necessary ingredient to get on this team, either to be leader or follower. And we're going to look into that as we look at verses 5, 6, and 7, which are chock full of really good stuff this morning. Stuff that's hard to put into practice. Let's take a look at it. Verse 5, chapter 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Okay, we want to get on to God's team here uh, by leading other men and learning how to be led. And the first thing we see in the first part of verse 5 is that young men must submit to their elders. Now, this phrase, those who are older, uh, is actually the same word for elders uh, in verse 1. So he could be speaking about the office of elder. Young men submit to your elders, which, of course, would be true enough. Most scholars think that rather than talking about the office of elder, he's simply saying young men, as is translated here in the NIV, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, to be submissive to those who are ahead of you. And uh, it's interesting to me that uh, I've experienced, uh, you know, being the younger generation, <laughs> believe it or not, and, and now I'm experiencing being the older generation. And uh, actually, some of you are still in that group that are the, my father's age, and that makes you very old. Uh, so I, I'm still uh, what we call middle age. I still have some people who are old enough to be my father. You might have been a teenage father, but uh, you're old enough to be my father. And it's interesting to uh, notice how every generation uh, tends to wrestle a little bit with the generation ahead of it. At least, at least in the 20th century, 21st century is true because things are changing so rapidly that uh, you have different perspectives culturally of generations who are shaped by different things in culture. You, if you go back a couple hundred years, it might not have been quite, we wouldn't have had the rapid change in culture. We might have had more similar perspectives. Uh, but there were always would be a, a tension, as you know, because, you know, when you're 18 years of age, you, you're pretty sure you know anything that's important already. Uh, and you're surprised when you're still learning in your 60s and 70s. Uh, but with the changes that we've had in our own culture, we, we have groups that are really seeing the world quite differently. And, uh, of course, my parents' generation came through the Depression and World War II. And the Depression makes you look at money and opportunity a particular way. And it wasn't the way I was looking at it as a child of the 50s and 60s. Uh, I was looking at more open-ended opportunities. And so I wasn't as cheap as my parents were. 
And I know that in their view, I didn't know how to value a dollar. I understand that. We had different perspectives on that and different perspectives on the work ethic even. That my generation, although uh, tends to be a little bit type A, the, the boomers are still builders and institutional builders and so on. Uh, we also believe in taking a break every once in a while. Uh, that first generation was really hardworking. They also, because they were World War II trained, they tended to be more authoritarian in their leadership styles. You look for the, the leader and everybody else falls in line. And, you know, as a child of the 50s and 60s, we believe that everybody ought to be able to participate in this, you know. And, ever, and even young people's opinions were important. And so we had a generational gap. And it was, it was a challenge uh, in my generation to be sure that we showed respect, that we were submissive to those who were older, even though, quite honestly, behind their backs every once in a while, we'd be snickering uh, at the differences. Well, the same is certainly true now. And... Uh, it doesn't take long for those who are in the younger generation to realize that it's not just the weirdness of the generation ahead of you. It's a natural phenomenon that the ones coming behind you are going to look at you the same blooming way. And uh, the changes that have taken place since the 60s and 70s are every bit as radical as the changes that took place between the 60s and 70s and the 20s and 30s. Uh, in fact, more so. So the younger generation is... Uh, I'm talking about the ones who are now in their 20s, young 30s, for those of you who are in that generation, uh, struggle, I find, even more with my generation. Uh, we're the boomers, the institutional builders. Uh, we believe in institutions. Even though we, we did things differently from our fathers, we believed in the institutions they were leading. And we were happy to come along in our time and take over those institutions in time and be responsible for them. The next generation doesn't even believe in the institutions their fathers are leading. And, uh, are, are, you know, have greater differences, in my opinion, than does the generation that's ahead of me. Maybe that's just my perspective now as the old guy. It's always a challenge. And uh, I'd like for us to think for just a moment about how we do submit to those who are older. This is not a concept that's particularly American. <laughs> We're the egalitarians who believe that one's worth and value is simply based upon the idea that you put down five minutes ago on the table, or maybe five seconds ago, and you re-justify yourself every time you might have an idea, rather than respecting age. But in the Scriptures, I think you'll notice that age is important. And I believe that in the church, it is important for us to figure out how we do what we're supposed to be doing, while also respecting those who are older, treating those who are of the same age as our brothers, those who are younger as our little brothers, and treating those who are older as we would our own fathers. And the scriptures seem to teach this clearly, even as you see here in verse 5. So you may be 60, but if there's someone who's 75 or 80 uh, in your midst, then you want to figure out a way that you show deference uh, to their seniority. So age does mean something in the scriptures. Let's look at some ways in which we can pull this off. Number one, I believe we should listen. Uh, if you're a younger man, you need to listen. I had someone tell me just this week who's a man in his 20s, and uh, he's in town as a budding executive. And uh, I asked him, how do, you, how do you handle this? You know, with some old guys you might disagree with. He said, you know, the old rule about just keeping your mouth shut for a year is a pretty good one. Uh, but he said, just listen, just listen. And I would, I would say to you, if you're, if you're with a group uh, who are older and to whom you want to show respect, one way is just to listen very carefully. And that doesn't mean just shut up. It means really listen to what they're saying. Secondly, accommodate. Even if you have a different perspective, you can usually find a way to accommodate both your concern and the concern of the group who's older than you are. Usually there's a path if you'll just listen really carefully. And if you do treat older men as you would your father, someone you love, someone that you respect, you usually find a way to accommodate. And often it's just by simply deferring your own idea until some later time. Sometimes it's a way of blending your two ideas. Sometimes it is by truly convincing the older person uh, of what you have to say. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. 
but there's usually a way to accommodate if you're looking for it. And uh, it seems to me that in Christian fellowship, whether it's in this room or it's a church where you belong or your, or your Sunday school class, that one of the beauties of the church is that it is intergenerational and that we are learning to live as family. And we, we actually uh, should be learning in nuclear families how to deal with multiple generations, but the church should reflect that. We have so many broken homes. The church needs to be demonstrating how we deal in multiple generations. And, uh, you know, it, it's very disappointing when you have someone who's 75 years old who uh, is in your church, and all they can do is complain about all the little kids that are about to run them over on the way to the bathroom. And uh, basically they, they want their parking place and they want to be able to get there and they don't want to be interrupted and they don't want noise. And, uh, you know, an 80-year-old who really the major experience they had in worship was that they, they couldn't hear very well because of the, the family that was rustling in front of them. And uh, I want to say, you know, to a 75 or 80-year-old, why do you think you're here? What's the purpose of being here with these other people? What's the purpose of being old? There's a purpose to it. It is so that you can serve more than anybody else. Because you've had more training than anybody else in this church. So you are more than anybody else. You're to see yourself as a servant, not as a consumer. If anybody should have gotten that lesson by now, shouldn't it be those of us who have a little age on us? So, no excuses. Uh, but having said that, what about the younger generation? Learning what it means to be in the same building with 80-year-olds and learning not to run them over and learning to show them respect and so on. So there are ways to accommodate, but we first of all have to buy into the multi-generational aspect of doing work together. Thirdly, ask questions. If you are working with folks who are older than you are, don't assume everything. Ask questions. Ask follow-up questions. See if you can understand why they think the way that they do. And uh, really get that in your head so that you can accommodate and lead in a blended way that accommodates multiple generations instead of just excluding a generation. You know, um, I don't know what IBM does now, but didn't they used to retire everybody at 55, wasn't it? Because they felt by the time you got my age, you, know, you weren't a flexible thinker anymore. Uh, is, that, is that really the way we want to operate? I speak now out of self-defense. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let me add one more before we go back go to older men. Uh, uh, partner, learn to partner. Uh, and I would say to younger generations, learn how you can partner with the folks who are ahead of you. Instead of feeling as though you have to peel off and do something entirely differently and leave them out, look for partnering opportunities. Try to connect. Uh, uh, so these are some of the ways in which I think young men can submit to their elders. Uh, they can listen to them very carefully, asking them questions, accommodate, and seek to partner. Now, let's talk just a minute about the older men. I've already mentioned this. But uh, we should be the ones who are actually taking the lead. And I find that my generation is uh, critical of the one behind us, just like my dad's generation is critical of us. In my generation, there was a lot to be critical of. So it didn't take a rocket scientist for someone to look at what we were doing and to be critical of us. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the, the next generation either. Uh, sometimes all that our generation has to say is, you know, they really don't want to lead at all. They hang back. All they want to do is just go sit around talking Starbucks. You know, they don't really want to do anything. Uh, and that's not true. They really do want to do something very significant. I find the 20 and 30-year-olds are vital and vibrant and alive but they just want to do it differently. So what I would say is, you, you who are, you know, in your 40s or 50s, uh, 60s, you're going to be missing a great wealth of information if you get frustrated with those behind you and cut them off. You're really going to miss out a lesson on our culture. You're going to miss out. And th this would be the reason for you to go ahead and retire at 55. If you can't include them, if you can't ask them questions, if you can't learn from them, if you can't partner with them, then maybe, maybe you do need to go on and do something else. So I would say to the older group, I think it probably is our obligation, even more than theirs, to be pursuing them as you would your own son, recognizing that your son has grown up in a different world than the one that you grew up in. 
But you're going after these younger guys to learn from them, ask them questions, and, and learn to thank them for what they do well. This, this generation, the one behind me, particularly uh, is hungry to be thanked. And when you thank them, they would like to be thanked in a way that's very specific. And in fact, if you ask them how they did something, they'd like it even better. So that they know that you're learning from them about how they do it. So there is a, and I think a lot of it has to do with broken families that have increased in numbers over the, over the decades. But they're looking for affirmation from the older men in their lives. So if you will get into their lives and include them and ask them questions and thank them for what they're doing, be specific about it, ask them how they do things, and then listen to their answers, uh, you too will learn and you'll find that it will help your business. And it will certainly help your relationships. And it will help your opportunity to influence them. But if you just tend to write them off because you don't understand them or you don't agree with them, uh, you're going to lose your influence with them very quickly. Uh, because they want to connect, actually. Sometimes they act like they don't, but they actually do. But they need that older person to come to them in that way to connect with them. Uh, in a way that probably my generation did not feel. Those of you in your 50s, uh, we knew there was some distance with our fathers. They maybe were too, bu too, too busy for their own good and our good. Uh, but we respected them, generally speaking. And we, generally speaking, had a sense that we were valuable, even though they didn't say it very often. But this next generation doesn't. And so it, we need to be more explicit, more intentional about how we include them. And then what we're going to find is that these beautiful leadership gifts that they have are going to flourish and that maybe they will radically change the institutions they're inheriting, but they will take responsibility for this city, for our country, and for the world. They will. Uh, and we want to help them any way that we can. So it seems to me that what Peter is saying is, look, grace is meant to be institutionalized. It's meant to be uh, institutionalized within leaders who are going to lead grace, who are going to lead graciously. And it will take young men who will always respect those who are ahead of them, and it will always be a multi-generational deal. Now, as he goes on in verse 5b, he then speaks to all men, and he says all men must submit to God. So if young men must submit to their, those who are older, all men must submit to God. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So we submit ourselves to God by being humble before him. Now, uh, I feel uh, uniquely uh, unqualified to teach on this topic. One time I, uh, in a previous church I was pastoring, I preached a, ser a sermon on humility. And I, I thought it was really good. <laughs> so uh, I went to the narthex after the sermon to shake everybody's hand. And one of the deacons who was particularly blunt, as deacons can be sometimes, he says, he says, Pastor, he said, that was a really good sermon. I was feeling really good about it. And he said, that was a really good sermon, considering the fact that humility is not your long suit. Uh, obviously, that was 20 years ago, and I haven't forgotten that. And uh, the reason I didn't is because he was exactly right. Let's talk about what humility is. One of the better definitions I've seen for humility or meekness is being who you are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. Being who you are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. So meekness, humility, is simply living out the reality of who you really are. And who you really are is who you are in the presence of God. Nothing more, nothing less. And it is not humility to pretend that you're something less than you are. That is not meekness. That's false humility, pseudo-humility. Real humility is knowing yourself as you are. In the presence of God, nothing more, nothing less. Now, it's really interesting that this sermon is coming by way of Sandy Wilson, for whom this is not his long suit. It's also very interesting that it's coming in the word of God from Peter, who also shared Sandy's problem. Uh, this was not Peter's long suit either. And so, you know, you have to make the best of it. Maybe the way to look at this is that. Well, shoot, these guys really know what they're talking about because they've had to wrestle with this, you know, like with a lion. 
And when we look at Peter, it's certainly true. You can look at his experience in, in Matthew 26 or Mark 14, where he says to Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'll never be like these other guys. And then a few hours later, you know, and he's denying the Lord three times, just as Jesus told him he would. It's amazing. And how Peter is seemingly, I think he's the only one in the scriptures who looks Jesus in the face and says these two contradictory words. No, Lord. He, he says that to him uh, after the high confession when Jesus says he's going to go die. And Peter says, never, Lord. And he says it when, when God reveals, you know, out of heaven all these animals that Peter is supposed to eat in his dream, which is to prepare him to go to the Gentiles. And Peter says, no, Lord. Uh, here's a man who's expressed the height of pride uh, and arrogance. And he's the one who's teaching us. And that's, that's comforting, isn't it? We have, so, we have a fellow struggler here who knows how difficult it is to deal with pride. Some of you would have read uh, Christianity, or, or uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And do you remember that profound chapter uh, where he says this? Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Does this seem to you exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride has gone. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed.
<laughs> oh, boy. Well, so much for that. Ah, all right. Well, is anybody, anybody here not under the table yet? Oh, I see a few of you still hanging on. All right. Let's look at what Peter is saying about this in verse 5. He says, God opposes the proud. Yikes. God opposes the proud. Turn with me in your Bible. Leave your finger there in First Peter. But go back to Isaiah chapter 2. This would be in, on page 1078. And I want you to notice something here. In fact, we might back up a few verses before that. Uh, yeah, if you look, look back on 1076, this is chapter two of Isaiah. And uh, the Lord says, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. OK, so we're we're getting that great end time vision, you know, that Zion uh, will be exalted and all the nations will stream to her. OK, that's in verse two of Isaiah two. This is now on page one thousand seventy seven. You'll see that he says. Uh, uh, verse eight, their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So you're getting the charges against uh, Jerusalem now. But look at verse nine. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. Verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Then look at verse 17. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. So you see kind of like a refrain. What Isaiah is saying is that in the coming day when God reigns, and this could be said of revival as well, because revival is just a, a, a period of history where people are quickened to the realities of our sin, God's holiness and his grace and salvation. We're quickened to the realities of what it means to be as we are in the presence of God, nothing more, nothing less. And what happens then? The arrogance of men is brought low and the Lord alone is exalted. There's a good definition of revival. If you look at the Great Awakening, here's what it was. The arrogance of men was brought low and the Lord alone was exalted. That's revival. And that's what's going to happen at the last day, of course. So you can see, back to First Peter now, you can see how we are told that God opposes the proud. Why? Because our pride wars against the sole supremacy of God himself. Pride fundamentally puts us in the place of God and we displace him in our own minds and in the culture around us and in the churches around us. So when we are vaunting ourselves, we are displacing the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's the real problem with pride. And that's the reason that God is on an all out war against pride, because it is the fundamental sin of humankind which wages war against his lordship. God opposes the proud. And so when we think about pride, just remember whenever it's coming into your life, you're asking God to oppose that part of your life. You're asking him not to be your friend or your ally in what you're doing and moving ahead. God opposes the proud. But notice God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to those who are living as they really are in the presence of God, nothing more, nothing less. Men who really know who they are and are living that out in their minds, in their hearts, in their language, in their deeds. God gives grace to them. He supports them. He works with them. He is behind them, in them, around them, before them. Now, why ought we to be humble? Let's take just a moment to answer this question. Why ought we be humble? Here's why. Because, number one, we are creatures. And in Romans 9.20, you have Paul saying, 
What right does the clay have to argue with the potter? He made us. We are his by virtue of creation. So, as we think about ourselves as we really are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less, we are first of all made by him. Therefore, we have no ultimate rights that are not given to us by him. All of our rights are simply because he gave them. So, for example, whether it's civil rights, economic rights, gender rights, whatever rights it is that we have in our society, it's because he gave them to us. They're delegated by him. He has all the rights because he made us. So that is the beginning point. Secondly, we are humble because we are sinful creatures. And in Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable. There are two people who went after prayer. One was the, one was the Pharisee. One was a publican or a tax collector. And the question is going to be, which one pleases God? Which one is justified by God? Everyone would assume, of course, the Pharisee. He's the one who's living a holy life. And Jesus describes the prayers of these two people. And the Pharisee says, I thank you that I'm not an evildoer. I'm not a robber. I'm not a thief. Like that tax collector over there. And the tax collector says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man is the one who went home justified. Because he knew who he was in the presence of God, nothing more, nothing less. He is a sinful creature who by right of creation has to look to God for all of his rights. But who is sinner knows that he has surrendered even what God gave him. And that what he deserves from the Lord is nothing other than God's wrath. And he shouldn't be complaining about it. And when you think about it, when we even complain about God's wrath on other people, it's a third-party complaint that really is our complaint. Should God be dealing with human beings like this? Should he really be judging them? We're taking up a third-party complaint, but it's really our complaint, and that's the way third-party complaints usually are, unless you're hired as someone's lawyer. And we take up that complaint without being hired. And the reason is we really think that as sinful, rebellious creatures, we have a right to escape God's justice. And what humility teaches us, no, look at yourself as you really are in the presence of God. Nothing more and nothing less. And you're nothing more than rebellious, condemned, sinner, creature in the sight of God. That helps with humility. It helps me. Thirdly, we are redeemed sinful creatures. So if we're in Jesus Christ, the humility continues here. We do not deserve anything, and yet we've been given everything. If the, first, or if the second principle scares you to death, the third one dissolves you to tears. That you've been given everything. Martin Luther said, I live as though Jesus Christ died yesterday, was raised today, and is coming back tomorrow. That is to say, I live with the memory of what Jesus did on the cross for me as though I saw it just yesterday. And I live with the confidence of the resurrection as though I just saw him alive today. And I'm living with anticipation in my life knowing that he's coming tomorrow. There you have it. Here's redemption. Knowing that you're a redeemed, sinful creature who had no rights and then God gives you the universe and says, come on up here to the throne with me and we'll rule together. Can you believe this? Of course you can't, except for by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're humbled because we've been given so much. Now, it's interesting, you know, the Academy Awards, uh, you know, the actress or the actor comes up and takes their award and everybody's applauding them. And they're dressed in all their finery and they've had all these movies about, you know, all these little clips about how wonderful a person he is. Maybe it's a lifetime award, you know, for distinguished service in Hollywood and all this. And what's the, one of the first things they say? I'm so humbled by this. Oh, yeah, you're really humbled. Yeah. I guess what they mean is that these accolades, I just really down deep inside, I know I'm not worthy of them, but, you know, give me some more. Uh, I'm humbled. Well, our humbling comes very differently. We're humbled because we know we're not just unworthy of accolades. We're worthy of his wrath. And then he gives us just this overwhelming gift that has nothing to do with anything in us. It has everything to do with something in him, which is this unexplainable love and grace toward us. So we are humbled by grace.
And then fourthly, we are redeemed, sinful creatures imitating Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we are imitating Christ who was humble. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. We are told in Philippians chapter 2 that although he had equality with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. And became obedient to death, even death on that rugged cross. So we ultimately are pursuing humility because we're pursuing Jesus Christ and we want to know him. And you will not know him through your pride. You will come to know him through genuine biblical humility, which is what you are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. Now, let's mention the nothing less for just a moment. We can concentrate on the nothing more because we usually think of ourselves as more than we are. But sometimes in our own self-condemnation and even in our pride, ironically enough, we will claim to be less than we are. And God has gifted everyone that he's brought to himself. So if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, he has gifted you in a peculiar way to serve the church and to serve the world. And it is not humility of you to say, I'm not gifted. Whatever it is that you do that you're gifted to do, it is not humility to deny that. All you're doing is denying the giver. You think you're being humble because you're assuming that the gift was a result of your cleverness. And that you're the one who should get credit for it. But when you know that you only have what you have because God gave it to you, then you're not slow in acknowledging what he gave. You acknowledge the gift. One of the reasons we don't acknowledge our gifts is because we don't want to have to use them. Because they're all meant for service. They all put us to work. And so laziness can also lead to false humility. I'm not gifted. I can't do this. Can't do the other. It's a protective device to keep us from being deployed in the service of other people. But remember, humility, meekness, is knowing who we are in the presence of God. Nothing more and nothing less. So in God's redemptive plan, having set you up on a high place and given you the ability to serve other people, to influence other people, you take what he has given and thank him for it and use it for his glory, for the edification of other people. And you do not deny those gifts. You thank him for them. You boast about him working through you. And that is meekness. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And he took two million slaves and moved them from Egypt to Canaan. He was a very meek man. Figure it out. Moses was very assertive when he needed to be assertive. But you'll find that before the face of God, he was on his face. Before the people, he was bold. Because he was on his face before the Lord. And he knew that whatever he had had come, had come from the Lord. Same thing with his successor, Joshua. So God gives grace to the humble. And this is how we are humble. We, we contemplate who we are in the presence of God. Nothing more and nothing less. So we contemplate our creatureliness. We contemplate our undeserved sinfulness. We contemplate our redemption and we contemplate the imitation of Jesus Christ. And we we imagine Christ in us doing what we're doing today because it's exactly what he's doing. He is in us and he is the one who has set out the good works for us to do today. And we consciously go into our marriages, our parenting, our love life, our society, uh, our work in the civic community, our work, everything that we do. We do it consciously. Imitating Jesus Christ, serving in his name. That's humility. Now, in verse six, notice we have a unique perspective. We not only have a powerful motive, which is that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We have a unique perspective. What is that perspective? Well, it's now and later. 
Some things are now, some things are for later. Number one, we humble ourselves now under God's mighty hand. And you can look in the Old Testament scriptures and you'll come up, especially in Exodus chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 13, chapter 32. You'll see this expression, God's mighty hand. And God's mighty hand is delivering them from the grip of Pharaoh and delivering them out of Egypt. So we are submitting ourselves to God's mighty hand right now. We're humbling ourselves. Under it. it's, not, it's not particularly uh, glorious for us to be carried out of Egypt with the powerful Egyptians chasing us and we're fleeing like a bunch of scalded dogs. We hardly look like we're princes under the, that status. We're under God's mighty hand. He's delivering us. And we humble ourselves now in this life. To be saved in this life is not particularly self-exalting. It's more self-abasing. And that's the reason that we don't like humility. But look at the perspective. We humble ourselves now, but we are exalted later. And you'll find this, uh, for example, in you'll find this future exaltation mentioned in the Gospels on a number of occasions in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, Luke 18, 14, that we humble ourselves now. We're exalted later. So if you are wondering why did God give me this desire to be great? Why did God give me this desire to be perfect? Why did God give me this desire to be proud of myself? Where is all that crud coming from? It's a distorted reality. We were made for greatness. We were great in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to get greater. And this is the irony of sin. As destructive as it is, God is going to turn it on its head, and we're going to end up in a greater state than Adam was when he first came in the Garden of Eden. Adam was able to sin. You're going to a place where you're not going to even be able to sin. You'll be confirmed in righteousness. You will appear more great than the angels. They will bow down and serve you. You will be exalted. You will appear like Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says you're going to see Him as He is. Therefore, John says, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Because you can't see Him as He is unless you're like Him. Otherwise, you're destroyed. You will be royalty. You'll wear the same clothing. You'll have the same appearance. And what was the appearance of Jesus Christ like when John saw him in Revelation chapter 1? Do you remember? He falls down as though dead. What shall the normal being, sentient being do when they see you? They'll want to fall down as though dead. It's called exaltation. That's called finally being able to be proud of yourself. Because you're proud of what Jesus Christ has done in you. And that will not be sinful pride because you will recognize yourself as you are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. And it would actually be sin for you not to take great delight in yourself when you get there. Because you will be his perfected human being. Now, gentlemen, if this is where we are going, can we not call upon ourselves to humble ourselves for a few moments? Can not the royalty who are ascending to the throne of God, can they not take a moment simply to enjoy what it means to be saved out of the darkness of this world and in their own personal sin? Can't they take a moment in their minority before they reach majority status? Can they not humble themselves to learn from God and, and humble themselves to take the very yoke that Jesus took, which was his pathway to his glory? Can we not say, Lord, thank you, and I'm going through these days, this, these days of pilgrimage. Maybe I, I groan and I, I travail from time to time, but Lord, it's true. I've got my eyes set on Canaan, and my heart is delighted because you're going to exalt me. And I'm not worried about being put down now. In fact, Lord, you know, in one way, the, the lower you put me, the more my hope grows. The more I see the contrast, the more I'm willing to let go of this world and to seek the things that are coming. And do we not realize that's the purpose of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God? So Peter is saying, look, guys, let me tell you something. I learned. I learned. What I tried to do 
was to bring the future glory right now into a broken world where it never belongs. For me to glorify myself now? Are you kidding? I look back on this in eternity and think, yeah, that, that body that was wasting away and the, the sin that was in the members of my, by my very self that was tempting me to all the rubbish I had to deal with in my own mind and the temptations that would come over and over again. And I wanted to exalt that. And now I have a conscience that is clear. I don't have simple thoughts anymore. And I don't live in a sinful universe anymore. And I, I'm here before the king and everything is perfect and delightful. And all my relationships are absolutely wonderful. And I don't condemn myself anymore. I'm not even tempted to. And I'm here in this glorious body. And I can exult in the Lord and what he's done for me. And, and I wanted to exalt myself back there. What crossed my mind? I was out of my mind. And gentlemen, that's what it is to be proud here. You're out of your mind. What are you exalting? Crap. Why? Because you think that's all there is. And that's exactly the way Peter was behaving. He was trying to get it in this life. Just like everyone who wanted to throw over the Roman Empire and give Jerusalem and the church its sovereignty. And that was going to be it. And that's about all they got until the Romans came and tore down the temple and everything else. They missed the whole picture that we have a great state to which we are moving. Don't confuse it with the present time. And don't confuse your puny little gifts, as great as they are because they're from God, by comparison they're puny. And don't confuse that with what you're meant to be ultimately. And don't confuse the accolades that you get from people around you now in this life with the deserved accolades that you're going to have one day. Don't trade it in. So, humble yourselves with this unique perspective now, because later you're going to be exalted. Now, here's finally uh, a clear application of this principle. When you get to verse 7, it really is tying together. In fact, uh, it really should be casting all your anxiety. Instead of cast all your anxiety, it's really a participle there. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And that is, if we humble ourselves now, if we know that later we're to be exalted, then we will just cast our anxieties on him. If you're not seeking to exalt yourself in this life through the, through the means of this life, then when you have impediments to whatever you're trying to accomplish in this life, you just cast it over on him. Say, Lord, you're going to take care of that. I just give you that one. And... Because we're not going to get all burned out about whether UT or Memphis wins the basketball game on Saturday. It's just not the end of the world. Now, I'm going to be cheering like a bandit. You know, I'll, I'll be there in front of my TV. I'm not paying $5,000 for my ticket. I'll be there in front of my TV cheering too. But, and and I'll, if, if my team loses, I'll be a little depressed on Sunday. That's the problem with Saturday games, Saturday night games. But I need to repent of that because that really doesn't matter. And I just take whatever my anxieties are, whether it's my finances or how my children are going to turn out or who wins the basketball game, I just say, Lord, you just take that one. Just take that. Now, why should I feel free to do that? Lastly, you get it here. Because he cares for us. And he really does. When Peter was in the storm on the Sea of Galilee and he thought he was going to die, he he at least did the right thing by waking up Jesus. It's the only place in the New Testament where we're told Jesus was sleeping in the middle of a storm. And you feel that way in your storm. Peter goes to Jesus, wakes him up, and here's his question. Don't you care? That was Peter's ridiculous question. Don't you care? I mean, in a few, few weeks, Jesus will be spread eagle naked on a tree dying for Peter. And all Peter can feel right now is Jesus must not care for me because I'm in this storm. And that's how you feel. Let's admit it. And what Peter had to learn was how much Jesus cared for him. Peter, do you love me? Lord, do you know all things? You know I love you. Peter was completely convinced that Jesus was completely devoted to him. And Peter may have not been loyal to Jesus, but Peter learned something. Jesus was completely loyal to him. And brothers, no matter what you're going through this morning, I care about it. Your, your good friends care about it. There's somebody who cares infinitely more. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself.
And he came and he came to take that yoke upon himself first. And he provided the payment for all of our sins. And he broke the power of the evil one. And he condemned the brokenness of this world, that there might be a new world. And he opened the way of heaven for us on that cross. He cares for us. And these troubles that you're carrying on your own chest today, and you haven't yet stopped to ask him to help you, let me suggest you do more than ask for his help. Would you just say, Lord, would you please remind me that this is your problem? And would you let me, let you be the CEO of my life again and hand this right back over to you? I'm serving you. As I manage my bereavement, I manage my finances, I'm managing these relationships, I'm managing my disappointments, I'm just managing it for you because you're the leader of my life. As you leave here today, I want you to realize he really cares for you. Cast your anxieties on him. And what you're saying is, Lord, I'm no longer pridefully considering myself the one who's in charge of my life. I want to humble myself. I'm your creature. I'm a sinful creature. I'm a redeemed sinful creature. I'm a redeemed sinful creature who wants to be like you. And you'll find that he'll take those burdens right off your chest. And he'll give them right back to you and say, now you manage them for me. You're not managing them for you. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Jesus taught us, don't worry. I clothe the grass of the field better than Solomon. I feed the birds of the air, and I love you a whole lot more than them. I'm going to care for you. Now, you take this problem back. It's my problem, not yours. And you go serve me by seeking to solve it. Now, there's a humble man. Because he knows who he is in the presence of God. Nothing more, nothing less. Let us pray. Father, uh, thank you for sending your son to be our Lord. So that we do not continue in the illusion that we are the lords of our own lives. The last thing we want to let go of, O Lord, is our pride. It is the ultimate sin. It is the last thing that goes from our hearts. And so we're praying for deep surgery today. That you would take out the arrogance of men. And replace it with a genuine humility. That we might know who we are before your face. And that we might rejoice in what you're going to do for us one day very soon. And in light of that, be able to cast all of our anxieties, all of our burdens on you today, knowing that you care for us. This is our prayer, O Lord. We make it in Jesus' name. Amen. Gentlemen, uh, they're trying to set up for a luncheon. So if you wouldn't mind clearing out a little bit faster than usual, we'd appreciate it.